Last Sunday morning, we uh, were in Revelation chapter 4, and tonight we'll be in Revelation chapter 5. William R. Newell was a uh, um, superintendent of the Moody Bible Institute under R.A. Torrey, and uh, he spoke to hundreds of people in lectures, and he spoke for 10 years on the book of Revelation, and then he wrote his commentary on it. He did the same thing with Romans and the same thing with Hebrews. And uh, William R. Newell said when he came to these two, the, uh, chapters four and five, he calls them um, the most majestic and overwhelming of any portion of scripture up until this point. And uh, it's a wonderful passage, and so we, we were in chapter four. In chapter four, John gave us a description of what it was like at the throne of God, the brilliant colors from around the throne, jasper, sardine stone, the emerald gemstones, then all of the colors of the rainbow combined with the flashes of lightning, the sounds of thunder and voices, all reflected from that glassy sea that was before the throne. God was seated on that throne. The Holy Spirit of God was represented by the sevenfold perfect lamps. In chapter 5, we'll see the Lord Jesus appear as the lion and the lamb. And uh, so all three persons of the Godhood are in this, uh, this scene around the throne. The throne was surrounded by 24 lesser thrones, 24 elders sat on those, uh, 12 is the number of the people of God, we had 12 uh, sons of Jacob, 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament, 12 apostles in the New Testament, so all 24 are around the throne representing those uh, human personages on those thrones. And then there were four angels also introduced, each one had six wings, and they cried out day and night, holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. Then the 24 elders joined those uh, four angels by casting their crowns before the throne and saying in verse 11 of chapter four, thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Now tonight, we continue in chapter five and see what John saw, see what God revealed to him in heaven. The title of the sermon tonight, Worthy is the Lamb. First of all, we, we, we start with a dilemma in uh, verses 1 through 5. That's the dilemma of a sealed scroll. Uh, let's look at this scroll. In, in verse 1, we read, And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. It was in the right hand of God who is seated on the throne. The right hand is a place of power. It's a place of authority. Um, it's where Stephen saw Jesus standing uh, when he was martyred in Acts 7.55, Jesus standing on the right hand of God. Now we come to the, the word book here. Uh, the, the Greek word is biblion, and uh, it would, would not have been a binding like we have. That was only, that came into uh, vogue in the, about the 6th century. But uh, this would have been a scroll. Uh, probably made of papyrus, a plant that grew in the Nile region of Egypt. The scroll, notice, has writing on both sides, uh, the back side, within and on the back side. It's interesting that uh, Ezekiel saw this uh, same uh, scroll in Ezekiel 2.9, or he saw a scroll that was written within and without on both sides. And Ezekiel said, and when I looked, behold, an and hand was sent unto me, and lo, a roll of a book was written, and he spread it before me, and it was written within and without, 
And there was written therein lamentations and mourning and woe. Uh, even while this scroll is sealed, it is rolled up, it has a wax seal on the outside of it, it's obvious that there's writing on the reverse side. If you roll something up, what you have on the, uh, exposed on the outside would be the reverse side of that scroll. And so th it was obvious that something was written also on the, on the back side. That tells me something about this scroll. There's no more room to write anything else on this, on this document, on this title deed, we'll call it, title deed of the universe. Nothing can be added, nothing can be changed. It's all settled, it's sealed. The scroll, as I mentioned, is the title deed of the universe. Whoever has the right to open it has the right to rule over God's kingdom. It also contains the future judgments as the wrath of God will be poured out. It's been stored up against the, the sins of mankind all these years, and it will be finally poured out on the world. The scroll was sealed with seven seals. Um, that would have probably, scrolls were sealed with probably a wax seal that was imprinted with either the king's signet ring or another a stamp of some kind uh, to show that this was sent from the person and it was to be opened by someone in particular. When you get a card in the mail, and uh, you, you go out to your mailbox and you, and you open the, the mailbox and, and you have a, a greeting card there, maybe it's a birthday card, maybe a Mother's Day card, and you open it up and, and you find out that the, the letter has already been opened. What does that make you think? Ah, they must have sent me a $50 gift card at least and my, my mail carrier stole it. You know, it's gone. And it's awkward to call and say, did you put anything in that? Well, why? Why do you ask? You know, it gets awkward. But uh, here, this particular scroll has seven seals. It's only to be opened by the person who has the authority to, to open it. That's the reason for the illustration. Okay, so um, in, in, these, in Revelation chapter 5, we'll see that the first seal is opened. Uh, in Revelation chapter 6, the next five seals are opened. Then there are, uh, in, in, that, in those five seals, four horsemen are revealed. When we get to Revelation chapter 8, the seventh seal is finally opened. The first, uh, when it's opened, the first four of seven trumpets will sound. After the seventh trumpet, there will be seven bowls of wrath that are poured out on the earth. And so uh, these seals are important. They, they indicate that something more is going to take place in the future events. Now, when you think of a scroll sealed, it's probably not possible to seal a section and then roll it on top of itself, but if you'll think of it as, as a scroll with, on, on the end of that scroll, you would have uh, six wax drops on the pages that uh, would, would be opened after those drops. So they would uh, be in, in these concentric circles at the end of the scroll. Uh, as, as it comes to the middle, these would be the seals. The, seven, the first seal is probably on the outside of that scroll. And so as he opens each seal, there's something new that's be, being revealed. The problem is found when an angel asks the question in verse 2, and I saw a strong angel proclaim with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? Notice this was a strong angel. He had a loud voice. Everyone heard him. But he doesn't have the authority to open this scroll. A mighty angel, yet it couldn't be him. In fact, no one answers. No one in all the universe was able to open it. In verse 3, And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. 
These are the three realms that categorize all places where, where life could be found. Not only could they not open it, they couldn't even look at it, neither to look thereon. And this was, this was disconcerting to John. Here's a book that can't be opened. How will we ever know what's inside? And, and I don't know how much time expires here, but there's this, there's this moment of, of waiting and anticipation. Is anybody going to, to be able to open this? And John's response is in verse 4. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. There it is again. To even look at this, these pages in the scroll. The verb here shows a continuous action. I was weeping much. He continued to weep. I would have liked to have been the elder who put his arm around John and said what, what comes next. There's hope and comfort offered by one of the 24 elders. Verse 5, And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book, and to loose the seven seals thereof. Don't you love telling somebody good news? And that's what this elder does to John. Stop weeping. Behold, that's a word in the Bible that comes up often. Something, something dramatic is going to happen, and it's going to change everything. The one who is worthy is identified. He's called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. That lion is prophesied in Genesis chapter 49, verses 9 and 10. Judah, in verse 9, is called a lion's whelp, or a cub. In verse 10, it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. The lion of the tribe of Judah is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who holds the scepter. He is the lawgiver. The root of David is also a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The word branch there is netzer. It's the growth that comes out of a stump that's been, that's been cut down. The root of David is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who has the right to open this scroll. Why? Because he's the one who has the right to rule the universe. He's the lawgiver. He's the eternal king who rules from David's throne. Notice the words, he hath prevailed to open the book. He, the, the word prevail there is that word nikao, our Nike tennis shoes, conquering. He is the, the one who has won the victory. He has overcome. He has conquered. And because of that victory, he has the right to this title deed. Daniel wrote of the same authority that uh, was evident in his vision. The, Daniel wrote this six and a half centuries before John wrote the book of Revelation. And in Daniel 7.14 I read, And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. What a wonderful prophetic section of scripture that tells us of the king of kings who will rule for eternity. Now we come to verses 6 and 7. We have the appearance of the lamb slain. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain. 
having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. Where did he appear? In the midst of the throne. In the midst of those four angels. In the midst of the 24 elders. How did he appear? He appeared as the lamb. Dr. Custer writes, The announcement of a lion and the appearance of a lamb are a shock to the reader. But there is a definite revelation intended. To the wicked angels and men, the Lord Jesus is a fearsome danger in their evil pathways. That is the lion. But the blood-washed saints and holy angels cannot see the fearsome qualities of the Lord. They see instead the one who died to redeem them and cherish them. Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 53, 7, he is brought forth as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. When John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Notice the Lamb is standing. He's alive. The Lamb is described as it had been slain. I believe the wounds are still evident in this scene. Many people believe that the nail-pierced hands and feet, the riven side, the thorn-scarred brow of the Savior will be forever visible to remind us of his great love. The lamb has seven horns. The number seven is a number that shows completion or perfection. The horn is a symbol of power and of strength. We'll see it often in the book of Revelation. He is all-powerful. He has seven eyes. We saw before the, seven, the, the Spirit of God has the seven eyes, or these beasts have seven eyes so that they can have perception. So these seven eyes show the perception is also perfect. He's all-knowing. We also read here, which are the seven spirits of God. Again, he's, he's the, the perfection of the Holy Spirit, the one Holy Spirit, sent forth into all the earth. What did he do? Well, he took the book out of the hand of God who sat on the throne. And that action brought a response of praise all around the throne. Notice the response of the heavenly throng in verses 8 through 14. And there's a, there's a crescendo as, as the group becomes larger and larger. If we start with four angels and the 24 elders who praise the Lord. Verse 8. And when he had taken the book... The four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they, I believe he's talking there in that they about the twenty-four elders only, they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain. And hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And hast made us unto our God kings and priests. And we shall reign on the earth. Who's responding in praise? Well, the four beasts from chapter 4, those angels. And then the 24 elders who are seated around the throne. How do they respond? In chapter 4, the angels, it said, didn't rest day or night. They praised the one who was on the throne. Here, 
they joined with the 24 elders in worship. They fell down before the Lamb. The only correct response to deity is devotion. When you come into the presence of God, you have to recognize your knee must be bowed to him, whether you can still get down on your knees or not. Your heart should be bowed in reverence to the one who's on the throne. They fell down before the lamb. Each worshiper, notice, has a harp. Harps are mentioned three times in the book of Revelation. There must be music in heaven. I was reading a, a commentary by uh, a Church of Christ member, and they were arguing that these are figurative harps because they can't have any musical instruments in their churches. Well, they have golden vials, so the harps will be there. They also have golden vials. Those are, those are um, bowls or containers, and they're full of odors. The, the word for odors there is thumiyama. It's from a verb, thumiao, which means to burn incense. And so these, these containers that these angels have, these golden vials, are full of the, the fragrance, the odors of the prayers of saints. The altar of the incense in the Old Testament represented the aroma of prayers that ascended up to God. The prayers of God's people are a sweet thing to God. He smells them, and they're beautiful, and he enjoys them. They're, they're the incense of hearts that have been consumed with the fire of surrender to God's will in prayer. If we only knew how pleasing prayer was to God, we would not be so reticent to stay home or to come to prayer meeting on Wednesday night or quite so prone to neglect prayer in our daily worship time with the Lord. They sing a new song. It may look like the ones singing include the four angels as well as the 24 elders because they've all been involved in this worship up to this point. But uh, I see here a, a redemption song is being sung. And so I think it's the 24 elders who represent the saints of Old Testament and New Testament, the church, that will be singing. All through the Bible, when you read of a new song... It's a song that's sung by those who have been redeemed. And that's what the text says here, a new song that they sing in verse 9. Angels are not redeemed. And the Bible uses the terminology that angels speak praises to God instead of singing, and men who are redeemed sing. So when we come to verse 9 and hear the song of redemption, I believe it has to be coming from those 24 elders and not the angels. When we get down to the angels in verses 12 through 14, we'll see that they are speaking and not singing God's praises. Verse 12, saying. Verse 13, saying. Verse 14, said. Now, I don't want to get too detailed about this singing or not because I've always heard that angels can't sing. If angels do sing and they're singing here, they would be singing about man's redemption. And I think some newer translations have that indicated in the way that they write it. There's a reference um, in the book of Job that some have pointed to and see, say, angels do sing. And I might be ready to, to, to concede that point. I don't know. I haven't heard an angel sing. God asked Job, where are you? Or where were you 
verse 7 of chapter 38, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. They may have been singing. These, these were angels. And it says they sang together. Um, Layman Strauss says, their song was silenced when sin entered and spoiled the beauty of the original creation. From that time, we never again hear of angels singing. Well, if this is an angel singing, it would be singing about the redeemed and not of their own redemption. So if they do sing, it's interesting to me that they sang at the creation of the world and will sing at the recreation of the new heavens and the new earth. When man is not subject to the, the possibility of sin or the presence of sin. Well, another diversion. I think we can learn a lot about genuine worship as we observe this scene so far. True worship, correct worship. We worship God correctly when we fall down before the Lamb. Again, when we come with the attitude of this humble recognition that he's God, he is holy, we are sinful, forgiven, yes. But in his presence, we fall down. We don't worship God casually. Second, we take part in worshiping him with music that honors him. We come with music that honors him instead of honoring the singer, the performer, the one who's singing. We also bring him our prayers. Prayer is always an important part of correct worship. Fourth, we praise him by singing of the blood that purchased our redemption. They're the theme of their song, thou hast redeemed us by thy blood. One author wrote this, the abhorrent modern practice of removing references to the blood of Christ from hymns will be fully corrected in heaven. Redemption by his blood will be the great theme of celebration. Well, let's go back to the text and ask the question, why do they respond? It's because the Lamb of God is worthy to take the book and open the seals. When Christ died, he conquered sin, he conquered death, he conquered the grave, hell. Redemption means that Jesus walked into the slave market of sin, paid the purchase price for our souls, walked out of that market and gave us to the Father. We now belong to him. He has redeemed us to God. Notice the redemption has reached to all mankind. The Bible uses the number four to symbolize the entirety of the world. We talk about the four corners of the, of the earth, meaning the four directions of the compass, north, south, east, and west. And here there are four words to describe those who have been redeemed, who live on planet earth, from every kindred, every tongue, every people, every nation. That redemption has given us a royal standing and a priestly responsibility. Kings, we have been placed into his eternal kingdom and we will rule with him during the millennial kingdom on earth. And we're also not only kings but priests. We have access to God in our worship, in our service. 
We also are to intercede for others so that they might come to Christ and have their forgiveness. As I mentioned at the beginning of this last section, the scope of those who join in praising the Lamb widens as we come to the end of the chapter. We started with the four angels and the 24 elders. And now in verses 11 and 12, we have a myriad of angels who join in the praise. Let's read that, those two verses. And I beheld... And I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts of the, and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. John saw the sight and he heard the angels voices. He attempted to number these angels, but it seems like he's limited to words. Apparently, there's only, the only word that the Greeks had for the largest number was 10,000. It's the word murias. We get our word myriad from that. John said that he saw that number multiplied by itself and then added to Thousands of thousands. Again, the of there tells us it's a multiplication problem. And so we have the product of multiplication. 10,000 times 10,000 is not 100,000. It's 100 million. And so that number doubled here, at least 200 million. I don't think he, he knew exactly how many were singing or how many were speaking, but these angels were all in unison. Notice, they, they said this in unity. They said this loudly. Can you imagine the glorious sound of these angels praising God? They gave praise by saying, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. All their praise goes to one person, the Lamb of God. They gave a sevenfold doxology. A perfect worship. There, you are worthy to receive power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, blessing. Each of these seven attributes of Christ are clearly seen in the rest of Scripture. But here, they will be enumerated in glorious praise. Then we move to the last group in verses 13 and 14. We find all of creation join in praise. All created beings. Now the number who praise God and the Lamb widens to include everyone and to every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. This is universal praise. Every creature, every created being in heaven, on earth, under the earth, in the sea, that would include all men saved and lost, all angels, good and fallen, all the animal kingdom, including everything in the seas. What a glorious sound that will be. It's a fourfold praise, blessing, honor, glory, and power. 
It's ascribed to the one who's on the throne, God the Father, and to the Lamb, the Lord Jesus. It's an eternal praise because it's given to the one who lives forever and ever. There will never be a time in eternity, and there's no time in eternity, but there will never be an occasion in eternity where he will not be worthy of our praise. It's an eternal praise. The original four angels agree by saying, Amen. The 24 elders fall down and worship the eternal God. What a glorious day this will be when Jesus takes the scroll and opens it. As the seals are broken and the wrath of God that's been held back is poured out on this earth, those who will see him as the lion will fearfully recognize the price of their unbelief and their rejection of Christ. And those who know him as the lamb that has been redeemed will joyfully proclaim his praises. What a magnificent scene of worship and of praise. Let's close in prayer. Father, we have brought you praise from our hearts tonight. And it pales into the uh, not, not being as, as glorious, it seems, as that day when we will, with all the created beings, lift our voices in praise to you. And yet it indicates the same devotion and the same love that we will give you then, we have for you now. And I pray that as we understand your worthiness of praise, we'll understand also your worthiness of service. And so strengthen us for the task at hand. Help us to be witnesses to those in our church and outside our church that others might see the Lamb of God, not face him as the Lion of Judah, but know him as the spotless Lamb who has taken away their sin. And so give us strength for that task, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.